Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 5, your Bible. I wanted to mention, we do have, uh, speaking of our missionaries, we had the Wrights visit us uh, earlier this year, and uh, Brother Jim Jenna sent us a uh, prayer card. And there are some in the lobby if you want to grab a prayer card for the Wright family. Uh, I believe it's brand new, so they they wanted to get us that to remind us to pray for them. So I hope we'll hope we'll do that. You might say, Pastor, I haven't shaken anybody's hand since we did that last. I, I hope that's not the case. I'm thankful for the fellowship that we enjoy and uh, greeting one another that uh, we see as we gather together. Uh, why did Paul have to command that? Why did he have to give instruction to greet one another? Well, he's right into the Corinthians, among others, and uh, they weren't doing it. They weren't greeting each other. You can imagine if you're in conflict with someone else over who your teacher is, according to 1 Corinthians, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Sometimes, whether that issue or other issues, there were issues that developed that kept people from being just, in a Christian way, cordial with one another, kind and loving to one another. And you know what it's like. Uh, to just kind of come in and maybe sit down and not necessarily be thinking about what I'm here for. But you're not here only to sing. You're not here only to worship the Lord. You're here to fellowship with people. And the church is one. We're members of one another. And so the communication and the fellowship that we have is part of the gathering. It's part of the purpose. And I hope that we see that as the church meets together, greets one another, encourages one another. There's a lot that happens apart even from our worship time, our scheduled service time, that really is what the church is. And I, I hope over uh, the course of our Christian lives, we grow and grow more to understand that. Uh, it's just a simple, practical way to hopefully encourage that in our lives. I ask you to turn to Acts chapter 5, as we considered uh, the first part of this chapter. In uh, our previous time in the book of Acts, we spent some time in Hebrews last week as we observed the Lord's table. But we looked at uh, a scene in the early church where there had been um, deception and lying, and we see how God dealt with it in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. And I would just note in that portion, the end of verse 5 where after Ananias falls down and dies, it says, great fear came over all who heard of it. Heard of it. And then three hours later, when Sapphira comes in and she has agreed with her husband to deceive, verse 10, she also dies. And we certainly recognize this to be a judgment from God for their sin of lying and lying to the Holy Spirit, specifically in this chapter. 
But in verse 11, it says, and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. And so this had an impact upon the early church. Churches at Jerusalem, there are, I think if you were to look, read up to this point in the book of Acts, there are thousands of believers. This is a two-person situation, and yet it made... It, it sent shockwaves through the Christian community. And not only the Christian community, but beyond that, it says in the end of verse 11, and over all who heard of these things. You can imagine if someone is uh, editor of the Jerusalem Gazette or whatever it might be, is writing or reporting as to what is taking place in that part of this chapter alone, this would make, this would make at least the front page. Based on what happened, great fear, the scripture says. And if you read through the book of Acts, there are a lot of things that happen that would be uh, newsworthy. I think you could see things in this chapter that are newsworthy uh, within uh, the context of what God is doing, but not only what God is doing in the church, but how the broader community is looking on and seeing that. There are lots of things happening in Jerusalem that are getting attention. Um, if you were to look at just this chapter, we've looked at previous chapters, but this chapter, there are, there's, of course, this scene, verses 1 through 11, and then in verses 12 through 16, just the first verse tells us that something's going on in a major way. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. So the report of all these miracles that are taking place, that would make front pages, and based even in the description in the next few verses, this would be a big deal. It's it's citywide. It actually expands beyond the city into the cities around as to what's going on in the church. And if we read through this chapter, we also find an arrest of those who are preaching the gospel. We find a prison break by not the apostles, but the angel who came and let them out, and if you were to head, put that heading on a newspaper, it would be local preachers arrested, break out of jail, and go right back to preaching. They go right back to the same place they're preaching. That's newsworthy. They get arrested again. And then by the end of the chapter, there's a showdown in the Sanhedrin. There's a great council, and that's their national council, as to what, what to do about what is taking place here. So when I say shockwaves, this is, the, this is the epicenter of gospel activity. And as this uh, Jerusalem is suffering from this earthquake, the leaders are trying to figure out what to do. And of course, the apostles are obeying Christ. They're preaching the gospel. And it really is interesting. By the end of the chapter, you have a respected politician who stands up and basically says, we need to just wait and suspend judgment and see whether God is with this group of people or not. So major things that are taking place. And among those major things, the miraculous. One writer, as he was speaking about the early church, he said, everywhere the apostolic church was marked out as itself a gift from God by showing forth the possession of the Spirit in appropriate works of the Spirit. And what he's saying is that the Spirit is present and the Spirit is working, and as the Spirit is working powerfully, he's doing what only the Spirit can do. 
He goes on to say miracles of healing and miracles of power, miracles of knowledge, whether in the form of prophecy or of the discerning of spirits, miracles of speech, whether the gift of tongues or of their interpretation. The apostolic church was characteristically a miracle-working church. And as you read through the book of Acts, of course, you see that here first in Jerusalem. And these are Christ's disciples. So what did Christ say of his disciples? That greater works than he even did, they would do. Why was that? Because the Spirit was empowering them. And in this chapter, I think especially in verses 12 through 16, we see that. Now, there's something that might not make the headlines, but fits within the outline of the book of Acts. And it happens here in verses 12 through 16. I'm saying I don't think it would make the headlines, but it makes the outline. It, it, it fits within the outline. What is the outline? Well, let's read through 12 through 16 and see if we can't see it. Luke writes, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more, believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came uh, by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, verse 16, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts and give us instruction. What is happening here that fits the outline? And I, I think we'd say it, it, it makes headlines in terms of what's taking place. There's an expansion taking place. But remember what Jesus had said, you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. While there may be some overlap here, what is happening in this chapter is the witness is expanding in a very observable way to the cities around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the epicenter, but the shockwaves are going out and the cities around are now being affected by what is taking place. And it has in part to do with the miraculous, the miracles that are taking place. And the miracles are taking place, why? Because God is answering prayer. What is taking place in verse 12 and the following verses is in answer to the prayer they had prayed in chapter 4. Take a look back at chapter 4. You might not even need to turn the page. But after the apostles, remember, were arrested and then released after that miracle that they healed the man who was more than 40 years old, who'd never walked, and now he's leaping around the temple. They arrested them. They eventually released them because they couldn't do anything to them. And But they threatened them, and then the, the apostles go back to the church, and the church prays, and among other things they pray. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, we would certainly say that what takes place in verses 32 down through verse 36 is in answer to the prayer. There's unity, there's power in their testimony, verse 33, and there's also a a spirit of giving, sacrificial giving to one another. But where is God's hand extended to heal and signs and wonders taking place? Well, you might say, well, Ananias and Sapphira, and that would be a miracle of judgment. But here you have in verse 12, the description at the hands of the apostles Many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. In answer to prayer, God is moving, he's working, he's using the apostles specifically, he's using their miraculous ministry and their preaching, and he's accomplishing his will there at Jerusalem. I would just want to take some moments and think about their miraculous ministry This isn't the first time that Luke has used this phrase in Acts chapter 2, verse 43. After the day of Pentecost, he says many signs and wonders or wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. We have a similar description here. Many wonders and signs in verse 43 of chapter 2, but here it's signs and wonders. I don't think there's any difference between the order of words. A wonder is a supernatural act, someone has said, which produces awe among the beholders. So you look on and you would say, that was amazing. Causes you to stop and just ponder the power that it takes to do whatever God did. But those things that were taking place were also signs. They were pointing to something. They were pointing in part to God and his power, but very specifically to Jesus Christ, who had poured out the Spirit, and as the Spirit was working, he was accomplishing these miracles through the apostles. So you could say that sign has a couple of different reference points, but all of it has to do with the truthfulness of God, the truthfulness of Jesus, the fact that he had been raised from the dead. And here he doesn't explain in verse 12 what these miracles were, We could see from earlier miracles, even by the one in chapter 3, that it was a miracle of healing where the man had never walked, and now he's able to not only walk but leap. There's a complete healing. But if we were to read the Gospels and also read the book of Acts, we would see that the kinds of things that Luke is talking about includes the healing of those who are sick, maybe even sick for a long time, causing the lame to walk, giving the blind sight, giving those who were deaf the ability to hear, those who had never been able to speak and were dumb, possibly because of a demonic uh, spirit or just uh, an issue with their body, now they're able to speak. And then, of course, there are lepers that are cleansed. There are even, in the book of Acts, on the whole, there are dead that are raised. There are people who died who are raised back to life again. We're not told, in verse 12, what these signs and wonders are were, but we're given the idea of the kinds of things that they were. And these are the apostles. Luke points that out in verse 1. It says, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. That's not to say that as you go through the books of Acts, you will find 
no one but the apostles. But here it's specifically the apostles that are the ones doing the miracles. It's at the hands of the apostles. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gathered his 12 disciples and gave them, Matthew says, authority over all, over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And so Jesus had empowered and given his disciples this authority before. They exercised that authority, probably even Judas. The Lord may have given Judas the ability to do miracles and even deceive the others into thinking that he was just one of them when actually he he wasn't. So these are the 12 apostles, Judas no longer. Now it's Matthias, but that original 12, with that exception, who are doing what they're doing as signs and wonders miraculous works. This is the early church. This is the book of Acts. This is what's taking place there. Jesus, of course, himself had done many miracles, but I want you to notice the wording here. It's at the hands of the apostles, the hands of. And there are times where you read through and when you have a more uh, descriptive narrative of a miracle, The scriptures talk about how one of the apostles or Jesus came and laid hands on someone. Uh, Jesus was requested by Jairus. He said, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Luke chapter 4 and verse 40, while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and laying his hands on each one of them. He was healing them. So literally, they're using their hands. They're coming, and those who are sick, they're laying their hands on them. Now, I'm not trying to, not trying to communicate anything mystical by, by talking about this, but really what they're doing is they're following the teaching of Jesus and the example of Jesus as they do what they do. And that's an interesting phrase in Scripture if you were to look at uh, the scripture and and just look for that phrase, the laying on of hands or someone laying hands on someone else. Sometimes it's actually in the context of an arrest. They laid hands on someone and put them in jail. At other times in the Old Testament, someone might lay hands, even in the New, they might lay hands on someone and consecrate them or ordain them or set them apart for some kind of service. Even in the offerings, the person who was to offer the sacrifice was to put their hand upon the offering as a representative of the offerer. But I think the mention here and any other time you might see that phrase in the context of healing. Why are they putting their hands? Because they're they're designating very specifically the person that they're praying for a blessing on. There's no question as to who this is. And then as they ask God to heal, which they would have had to do, then God is healing. God is bringing a blessing to that person as the apostles, or later on, Stephen or Philip, as they're doing those miracles. It's really a a way in which someone called down blessing upon someone else. You might say, well, where do you see that? I think you can see it earliest on in the pages of Scripture when Jacob did that for his grandsons, 
and they came to him and he he laid his hands on them he had his hands crossed and he asked god's blessing on them and through the pages of scripture even in the new testament the request for blessing um, even came to Jesus. Remember when the children were coming to him and the disciples said, don't trouble him, but he said, permit the children to come to me. And what did he do? He laid his hands on them and he blessed them. Now the blessing might be blessing for their life. It might be calling down God's goodness and grace upon these children. But in this case, what is taking place? God is blessing them with something they have not had maybe in their whole life or maybe for a significant portion of their life. He's blessing them with healing. He's blessing them by removing the demon that is possessing them. He's blessing them by giving them clear and clean skin and no longer leprosy. He's giving them blessing by giving them eyesight and hearing and the ability to speak. He's blessing them with that. Those are all good things. And as you even think about those things, have you ever stopped to thank the Lord for those blessings? Those things that maybe you have as blessings, but you don't tend to think about how much of a blessing it is. Sometimes we see someone who doesn't have those blessings, or maybe just one of those things, and we don't always think about it, maybe until we see someone who doesn't have that, and we realize that's a blessing. And so here, God's blessing is coming through the apostles to all of these people. Notice it says in the middle of the verse there, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. The people of who? The people of of Jerusalem, I think you could say. Uh, I don't believe we're talking about the believers. I think the way the passage reads is that these are actually people who are coming to faith. Uh, Even as you read down a little bit, more and more believers are coming to the Lord. So this is uh, like when someone came to Jesus and asked for healing, as they asked for healing and Jesus saw their faith, there were times, of course, he said, your sins are forgiven you, And they were also healed as well. And what was taking place is Christ is really doing everything for the health of that person, not merely healing them physically, but giving them forgiveness of sins and eternal life. When you read through the Gospels and you see healing, I'm not saying in absolutely every case it is, but oftentimes there's spiritual wholeness coming at the same time that physical wholeness is coming. And Jesus draws attention, for instance, to the woman who who touched the fringe of his garment, and he said, your faith has made you whole. Remember what he called her? He said, daughter. There was a relationship between him and this woman, a family relationship, which means that she had believed. So the apostles, in their miraculous ministry, bringing blessing by the power of the Spirit to the people there in Jerusalem. And look at the end of the verse. It says, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Now, what's notable about this, I believe, is the fact that this is a very public place. This is a very public scene. This is at the temple. Remember, they had been threatened 
They've been threatened not to teach in Jesus' name, but here they are in a very public place in the temple doing these miracles. And I would suggest that this is also in answer to the prayer that they had prayed back in chapter 4. What did they pray for? They had prayed in chapter 4 for the Lord to not only extend his hand to heal, but before that, they asked that they would be granted to speak the word with all confidence, to be able to preach the gospel as they were doing what they were doing. And I'm suggesting, I think the context of the chapter helps us to see this, that not only were they doing miracles, but they're preaching the risen Christ. They're preaching the gospel message. And so as they're doing these miracles, there is uh, gospel preaching going on, and it's in a very public way, and they had been threatened not to do that. So the Lord is granting them the boldness to be able to go right back into the temple precincts, right back to Solomon's porch, where there was a large uh, meeting place, and there are miracles taking place there, and the gospel is being preached there. How do I know the gospel is being preached? Well, eventually, there's going to be opposition to what they're doing, and I'm just going to briefly point this out. We'll have to consider this, this passage at a later time, but look at verse 27 in the chapter. This is after they've been arrested, released by the angel, preaching again, arrested again, and now questioned before the Sanhedrin, verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter's going to answer that with, we must obey God rather than men. What is absent from that discussion is the miracles. They're not referencing the miracles. They can't deny the miracles. Miracles are all over the place. What they're concerned about is the teaching, and as they question these apostles, they're questioning them about the teaching of Christ. So why, why am I saying they're preaching the gospel too? Because I think in the context, you could say that is what they're doing along with this healing ministry. The signs and wonders are taking place, and they're preaching the gospel. What's the source of this person's healing? This is, this is the name of Christ. It's the power of Christ. He had said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Back in chapter 3, and you could expect that the apostles were doing the very same thing here in Solomon's portico. This is a public thing. God's giving them boldness in answer to his prayers. He's giving miracles in answer to their prayers. And God is doing wonderful things. Now, I want to just make an application, and that is, do you see in your own life boldness when it comes to the preaching of the gospel? Do you see in your relationships with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, do you ever see boldness in your life? Do you want to see boldness in your life? I want to see boldness in my life. I want to obey the Lord by proclaiming the truth of his word to other people. I don't want to shrink back. I don't want to be, which I sometimes sometimes think 
uh, we are. I don't want to be a coward. I don't want to be timid when I shouldn't be. And I want to just encourage you, making the link from chapter 4 to chapter 5, and especially this verse, that here they are in a public scene together, boldly proclaiming God's word. God is answering that prayer. Have you prayed for boldness? Maybe it's an individual that you care about deeply. You want them to come to Christ. Have you prayed for boldness in your relationship? I'm not talking about being tactless or brash, rude in some way. I'm just talking about being able to communicate to them the truth in humble boldness. You can pray for that, and God will answer that prayer. You see it here for all the apostles, and they're apostles. And they recognize they need that boldness. They're asking God to help them. And what is he doing? He's giving them grace to be able to be bold. He's obviously empowering them in other ways. I mentioned in previous chapters here in Acts, some verses on the subject of boldness. I'm just going to read Acts 14, 2. It says, but the Jews who disbelieved and stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So we look at a passage like verse 12 or other passages where there are miracles taking place, and we forget that the same miraculous God, the God who can work miracles, can also do something in my heart that I don't see there. I don't see boldness. I don't see confidence. But God can grant that, and I need to pray for that, and I want to encourage you to pray for that and rely upon the Lord when you're in that circumstance and you want to give the gospel to someone. Ask, Lord, give me boldness. Paul asked others to pray for him, that he would have the boldness to preach the word of God. God gave that to him. Are you praying for that? I want to encourage that. So you have. Of course, the miraculous ministry of the church, verse 12, you have the public presence of the apostles at the, at the temple, which suggests the, their boldness, powered by God to do that. Thirdly, I want you to notice the distinction of the church. The church is distinguished in Jerusalem from those who are not a part of the church. We find that Perhaps in verse 12, when it says they were all with one accord, one impulse, one purpose in the temple, I think you could say that that group is distinct because they're one-minded about that. But verse 13 says, none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. None of the rest, and the word there is, Dare. They didn't have the confidence. They didn't have the boldness to be with them. And if I read through this in various translations, I think it is a challenge to know who Luke exactly is talking about. Did you read it and wonder who is he talking about? Because in verse 12, it says that the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place. That's one group of people. The signs and wonders involve another group of people, and it's probably the people mentioned there when it says among the people. And then it says, and they were all accord in, uh, with one accord in Solomon's portico. 
is that the church that's looking on the apostle as the apostles do those signs and wonders at those who are coming to faith? So you've got the apostles, the other believers, you have the ones who are coming to faith, and so they're becoming a part of the church. And if that's the case, then what about verse 13? When it says, none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. So there's this other group that's observing what is taking place, perhaps from somewhat a distance. They know what's going on, but they don't want to become part. They don't want to officially become connected with this group. They don't want to be associated with what's going on, although they hold them in esteem. And I think the best explanation in the context here is that there are these groups. They're the apostles. They're the believers, the many Christians who had come to faith already. They're the ones who are becoming Christians as they believe and maybe are healed at the same time. And then there are people who are looking on with favor, but they're too afraid to become part of the group. Now, we know that there are those in Jerusalem who are looking at the believers, and though they wouldn't join them, they have a respect for them. I think you could see that even all the way back into chapter 2. But if you remember, look at verse 33. At the end of verse 33 of chapter 4, Luke writes, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And this is how I interpreted that last phrase, an abundant grace was upon them all. There was favor for this group of people who had believed in Jesus, the Messiah, because of what was going on in their community, their distinct community in Jerusalem. There was a respect, there was an admiration, but there was not a participation. And what's their holdup? Again, back to verse 13 of chapter 5, what's the holdup for this group of people? Why wouldn't they become a part? It says none of the rest dared. They didn't have the confidence. And again, if we remember the context, these apostles are there publicly, very boldly, even though they've been threatened by the authorities, they're very boldly taking a stand for the gospel when they know they've been threatened by the authorities. Remember how Nicodemus came to Jesus by night? Remember how John says in his gospel that there were many rulers who believed in Jesus, but they would not confess him publicly for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue? So there was this social pressure, perhaps another part of the fear in verse 13, describing this group of people is the fear of what just happened to Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, there were two people who they were just dishonest and God took their lives. What was driving them? Fear of the authorities, fear what would happen if they should join the disciples, fear related to what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Whatever the fear was, it was sinful fear. It's sinful fear. They were cowards. 
I'm not saying we don't struggle with that ourselves, but this group of people, rather than joining with these Christians, rather than following Jesus, they had admiration, but they were never, they, they never had the confidence to step in. And obviously, to refuse to join with those who believe Jesus Christ out of fear for one reason or another is disgraceful fear. It's sinful timidity. God does grant boldness. And even as a person comes to Christ, there is a boldness to confess Jesus as the Messiah. When John writes Revelation and quotes, Our Lord, when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, but for the cowardly and unbelieving. There are people who will not come to Christ because they're fearful. They're fearful of other people. They're fearful, fearful, sometimes socially, fearful of the commitment they'll have to make, fearful of lots of other things. But the Lord just says, calls it for what it is. It's sin. There's a sinful fear. And so may the Lord help us and give us boldness, even as we've come to confess Christ, to continue to openly confess Christ and even pray for boldness that we would have no fear. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the God of heaven. Why would I be afraid? Now, if I start to think about who he really is, I, I won't be afraid if I know that he is with me. But if I start to fear, as Nicodemus and those rulers did, as I start to fear the face of men or women, which is oftentimes what keeps us, isn't it? We, we fear other people, and so we don't say what we ought to say. We don't tell other people about Jesus because fear is just gripping our hearts. You need to have a greater fear, the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord will help you to overcome the fear of man. May the Lord grant us that. Verse 13 is a, is a, is a testimony to a group of people And perhaps even with that group of people, as the Lord is working in their heart, they're going to come to faith. We're not told specifically who there is, but there's a group of people who they're, they're admiring. They're holding these people in esteem, but they just wouldn't step in and become part. And I really could be talking to someone here even today who it's because of fear that you have not professed Jesus Christ. And I just want to call you to turn from that sinful fear and confess Jesus as Lord. He really is Lord. And he will save you. He'll forgive you your sins. And he will give you his spirit. And his spirit will strengthen and encourage you and help you in your life to live without fear, at least without that kind of fear, but the fear of the Lord instead. Now, verse 12, the miraculous ministry, the unity that they enjoyed in that public presence, that boldness they had in, the, in Solomon's portico. We have this other group which really distinguishes the church as it distinguishes them from this group that would not join with them. And then look at verse 14. And all the more, believers in the Lord, 
multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. One of the authors writing about this text and trying to really figure out what Luke is doing in his narrative, he he just suggests that Luke just lost count. Like Luke has been stating numbers up to this point in the book of Acts, but he just lost count. I, I can't, There's so many, I can't count them anymore. Which, as you look at, and it's not that Luke's not going to use numbers later on, but there is a sense in which, I mean, how do you quantify? Look at verse 14, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. How could you count them all? Now, as they were baptized, confessed faith in Christ, became part of the church, God knows their number. The Jerusalem elders should know their number if they're baptizing them and putting them, you might say, in the the role of the church and caring for them as shepherds do. But in terms of Luke's description, there's just so many people who come to Christ. And they're growing not just because the church is doing something to entertain, but this is genuine conversion. Notice what it says, verse 14, and all the more believers in the Lord. It's not just people coming to the group. That's sometimes what happens when you have a meeting of the local church. People come to the group. And maybe they continue to come to the group so that it may even appear that they're a part of the group. But there's a distinction even within this room between those who believe in Jesus Christ and those who do not. There's a line there of true salvation. There's a line between a person who believes in Christ and someone who has not believed in Christ. A person who's a child of God And I'm saying, according to Scripture, what Scripture says, that a person who's not a child of God is still a child of the devil, still a person who is living after the lusts of their flesh, pursuing the course of this world. They're doing, maybe even unwittingly, but they're doing the devil's will. This is genuine conversion. This is active faith. The word believers there is an active word. It's those who are trusting in the Lord. They have put their faith, they're relying upon the Lord. They're relying upon his death as a sacrifice for their sins, that he paid the penalty for them, that they might not uh, have to go through an eternal punishment, but now have the gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins given to them. And so this is the growth of the church. It's through genuine conversions. It's through faith. And notice, Luke goes on to explain something that we might kind of wonder, why does he say it this way? But he says, multitudes of men and women. Multitudes of men and women. Why does he draw attention to both men and women? They're growing through genuine conversion. Uh, You could say that they're growing without discrimination. I don't know if that's the best way to phrase it. I kind of thought through. I think you could say positively that it is inclusive of anyone who would believe. It's including anyone who would believe, men or women. In other words, this isn't just like joining the nation where a male would be circumcised, become a part of the nation. Obviously, you could have a woman who's a proselyte to the Jewish nation as well. But in a, in, in a real way, women were following the teaching of the apostles. Women were coming to faith in Christ just as well as the men. It was 
without any discrimination, the Spirit was working among both, and there were many people who were being saved. Why does Luke draw attention to the women as well as the men? Well, if you read through Luke's gospel and through the book of Acts, Luke does this. Uh, He may be doing it because of an inherent bias within the Jewish nation at the time, or even the Gentiles. One writer, as he wrote a commentary in the book of Luke, said this. He said, it's a detail, but important one in the universality of the third gospel, that it is in a special sense the gospel for women. He's saying that about the gospel of Luke. He said, Jew and Gentile alike look down on women, but all through this gospel, he's talking about Luke, they are allowed a prominent place, and many types of womanhood are placed before us. He goes on to list many of the women that Luke mentions in the gospel of Luke, and if you read through the book of Acts, it's the same way. Are there men saved? Yes. But are there women saved? Yes. And we're not diminishing one or the other. We're mentioning both because both are important, and every person needs to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Every person can become a child of God. The gospel was intended to be preached to every creature. And that includes men and women. Certainly, we preach the gospel to children at their early age. Jesus had said, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost part of the earth. And he said, make disciples of all the nations. That included men and women. Matthew Henry, as he commented on this passage, and it's a beautiful thing to look at this verse and to think of all of the people that God is saving. It says again, verse 14, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Brothers and sisters, though they may have died long ago, who are now in heaven that belong to the church of Jesus Christ. Christ had said, I will build my church. He's building it up, building up with so many people. Matthew Henry says, many have been brought to the Lord, and yet there is room for others to be added to him, added to the number of those who are united to him. And additions will still be making till the mystery of God shall be finished, the number of the elect accomplished, We don't know who the elect are. We know that that's a gospel or a a, a biblical teaching, but our job is to proclaim the good news, to proclaim the gospel message so that anyone who hears and believes can be saved. And I would make that appeal to you today. This gospel message that the apostles are preaching, we are preaching it today, the same message of Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, I want to call you today to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You'll find your sins forgiven. You'll have a home in heaven. You'll become a child of God. God will put his spirit inside of you. Your life will change. Have you seen that in your life if you're a Christian? Praise the Lord. Wonderful thing to see that God is working, and he's working here in Jerusalem, but he's not only working at Jerusalem, right? There are multitudes. That's the word he uses in verse 14. There's noticeable growth, not only there in Jerusalem, but there's, it's becoming obvious on the streets of Jerusalem that something is happening. No longer in verse 15 are we in the portico of Solomon, where the gospel is being preached and miracles are taking place. Now there's such a movement 
towards Christ as the gospel is being preached, that people are literally bringing people out into the streets so that if an apostle passes by, their relative might be healed or their friend might be healed. Look at verse 15. It says, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Now, as Luke writes these words, and he's describing believers in the Lord who are believing and they believe that Christ can heal their act of faith is to bring this one who needs healing out to the street, laid on a cot or a pallet, so that the power of God coming through Peter, this preacher of the gospel of Christ, this preacher of the Messiah, so that the power of God could flow through Peter, even his shadow, so that that person could be healed. And you might say, well, does Peter's shadow actually heal people? I mean, is that possible? I remember having a discussion with my freshman students when I taught uh, in Christian high school about this passage, and we talked about whether Peter's shadow actually healed people. You know, later in the book of Acts, there are, there are pieces of cloth that are taken from Paul and laid on the sick, and the Scripture says that those people to whom those cloths came, those those whatever they were, and that touched the sick, the people were being healed. Paul was not even present. Something that had touched him touched them. And, and Luke says extraordinary miracles were happening at the hands of Paul. Now, that happened. He does say extraordinary. So that St. Matthew's church that sends out the cloths that are supposed to heal that I got years ago, that, that, that doesn't work. But in terms of an apostle, when God's power is at work through someone, he allowed that to happen. And did he allow Peter's shadow to overshadow someone as he walked by and that person is suddenly healed? I think the most helpful explanation that someone gave as I was reading on that, and even as I've thought about myself, is that Luke really doesn't, doesn't conclude that. What he is talking about is what the people were thinking, right? They brought their, 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 their friend or their relative or whoever it is out into the streets, and they're thinking, if I can just get in his shadow, if I can just get this person in his shadow, that person will be healed. What does that tell you? That tells you that they had faith, that God was really speaking and working through Peter, that Peter's message was true, that Peter's Messiah was the real Messiah, that the Spirit working through Peter was, was actually working and would work for them. Remember the woman? If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. That's what she said. And she got close enough, and she touched it. And the Bible says that she was immediately healed. Now, what healed her? Was it the touching of that fringe of Jesus' garment? There's healing in his wings, the Old Testament said. Maybe they had that in their mind, that if I just come and touch the fringe of his garment, that I'll be healed when Jesus eventually, remember he stopped the crowd 
Who touched me? There's a crowd around him. Who touched me? His disciples, there's all kinds of people. How could you say who touched you? He said, I felt power go out from me. And he turned and the woman came trembling. And of course, she's the one. And what did Jesus say to her? Daughter, your faith has made you whole. It wasn't the fringe. It was faith. Here, it's not the shadow. It's El Shaddai. It's the almighty God who is healing these people as they're coming and literally being laying in the streets so that if Peter comes by, they might be healed. God is blessing that faith. He is answering the cry of their heart, their prayers for healing. He's doing a work in the name of his blessed son, the Lord Jesus, to give people confidence in that name. Yes, blessed be the name. God is powerful. He's powerful to heal. He's powerful to save. And just quickly in verse 16, the gospel here is growing without discrimination. It's growing through genuine conversion. It's certainly growing noticeably, but it's growing geographically. Verse 16 says, also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Everyone included. I say it's expanding geographically. It's not that the apostles are going out. It's that the people are coming in. But as they come in and are healed, then they go back to their homes and the gospel's expanding. What a wonderful thing to see the gospel expanding and extending to places where it had not before. And just by way of application, I would ask that question, both of us individually And then as a church, what is happening to the gospel under your stewardship? Your stewardship. You have something very precious and powerful that's in your hands. What are you doing with it? What's happening to it? Are you taking that and are you burying that talent? Or are you actually taking that stewardship and responsibility seriously? You realize we have a treasure. We have the the knowledge of eternal life, the knowledge of the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And as I proclaim that message to others, it doesn't mean I have the power to save people, but I have something to give them where if they believe it, they will possess eternal life. Eternal life. What am I doing with my stewardship? And more corporately, what are we doing with our stewardship of the gospel? Are we proclaiming it? When was the last time you preached the gospel to someone? When was the last time you gave someone a gospel tract? When was the last time you intended to and pursued someone with the gospel? When was the last time you prayed for someone that they would believe the gospel? These are questions we have to put to ourselves if we're truly disciples of Christ. If a disciple of Christ is never telling someone about the good news, if a disciple of Christ is never telling someone about Christ, 
can we really call them a disciple of Christ? I ask those questions, and I think as we as we reflect on that, we may need to just say, shame on me. I have been a coward. I have not preached the gospel. I have not told people that I should have told in my life, Lord, forgive me. Lord, stir up in my heart a love for you, a love for your gospel so that I would be ready like Paul to share the good news of the gospel. Don't let me go on and waste my life shouting about and praising other things other than Jesus. You know, people are, there's, there's such a, there's such a, an excitement sometimes about things that don't matter for eternity. I, I, I don't know if you watched any of the playoffs of whatever sports going on, but you see fans who are going all out. They will dress up and show up and shout out and proclaim their loyalty, and they don't care who hears. They want everybody to know that. Why don't we do that about Christ? Why don't we do that about Christ? Is it when we don't believe it? I think that's possible. I think it's possible that we don't really believe what we say we believe. Is there such a thing as a Christian in name only? Absolutely. But if you know the Lord, and I'm not, I'm not really trying to cause anyone to unduly question their salvation today, but if you know the Lord, why don't you talk about the Lord? Why don't you tell others about the Lord? Why is your life not geared towards that, especially in light of eternal things? What did Job say? My days are as swift as a runner. They're just going by. And I'm spending my life, even today, for something. May the Lord give us grace. May he grant us boldness. May he stir up a love for Christ and his gospel, where we say, for to me to live is Christ to die is gain. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and we confess as your children. We truly believed in Christ. Lord, we, we oftentimes fail. We oftentimes are lulled to sleep by the vanities of this world. We oftentimes have our eyes fixed on other things, and we ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts in such a way that we would turn away from our sin and our foolishness, and that we put our eyes again on Christ, the good news of the gospel, both for the sake of those whom we know who do not know him, but also for the sake of others, our community, certainly, ultimately, Lord, for the sake of your name. We do praise your holy name, and we bless your name, and we pray even today that we would make known your name to others. Give us grace to do so. Unless your spirit works in our hearts, Lord, this will be wasted time. Unless your spirit works individually, definitely, personally, we can say lots of words but your spirit is the only one who can cause the change. And so we would ask for that. We would ask that you would do the work that only you can do. And I do pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who has not believed in Christ, who's not turned from their sins, that today would be the day that they turn to Christ from their sin and believe.
and walk a life that's pleasing to you and preaches your gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.